What we're, what we're learning in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is that there are seven churches in which Jesus Christ himself is giving instruction to. As a matter of fact, he, he commands his apostle John to write some things down, things that he's seen in the past, things that he's seen presently, things that he's going to see in the future, and he's going to take all of that information and write it down, and he's going to send it to seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And we're going to learn through these seven churches not only the historical significance, but we are a local church. And, and these are seven local churches that existed in the first century. And, and just like the epistles that we read in our New Testament, the epistles that are written to churches, we want to glean application for our church from these seven churches. And what's interesting is that each of these churches are introduced, and, and, and so we'll get information about the church but then we'll see something specific about Jesus Christ concerning each of these seven churches. And then we're going to see a commendation. In other words, Christ is going to say, hey, listen, church at Ephesus, here are some things that you're doing well. And we want to pay attention to those because those are things that Jesus himself commends from a church. And so we want to, we want to pay attention and say, hey, are we that kind of church? Would, would Jesus look at our church and commend us for, for similar behavior, simil similar works. And then there's also a correction for each church because there's something that needs correcting, even though they're doing some good things. Uh, there's something that they can do better. And so Christ is going to give them correction. And then he's going to give them a challenge that, hey, if you don't do this, there's going to be some consequences. And so we're going to see those five things show up in each of those churches. So last week, we looked at the church of Ephesus and we saw that the name Ephesus means fully purposed. And we talked about historically that Ephesus, we can find Ephesus, the city of Ephesus in the book of Acts. And what we find in the book of Acts is, is that this city, it was a large city in Asia Minor. It was kind of the marketplace of Asia. It was a seaport. There was a lot of banking and industry, but it also had a temple from this for, for the goddess Diana. As a matter of fact, it was one of the... the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple of Diana, this, this goddess worship was rooted and centered in the city of Ephesus. And, and as you read Acts, you see that there are, there are people that make their living by selling shrines or, or selling idols to, to people that would worship this goddess Diana. She was the goddess of fertility, and, and there's a lot of things we can talk about. We don't need to talk about it. It was, it was just a wicked city full of idolatry, full of pagan worship. And yet Paul gets there in Acts chapter 18 in verses 19 to 21. And, and, and as he lands there, he goes into the synagogue and begins preaching to the Jews. That was his normal manner. Paul would go to the people, to the Jews, and, and, and in a synagogue, he would preach Christ from the word of God. And that usually would result in that synagogue splitting right down the middle. Because some of those Jews would respond to the gospel, some would cling to their Judaistic religion and traditions, some people really got saved, other people got really mad. And, and what would happen is, from that, there would be people that would become followers of Jesus Christ, ultimately a church would be planted. And, and so in Acts 18, Paul comes through Ephesus, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and after he preaches in the synagogue, there's some people that say, hey, would you stay and teach us more? And he says, I got to go. And so he leaves, but he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Then you find in Acts chapter 19 that Paul comes back through Ephesus. And the Bible says in Acts 19 and verse 1 that this time when he comes through Ephesus, he finds, listen, certain disciples. Because listen, the gospel is important, but so is discipleship. And so Aquila and Priscilla did their job in Paul's absence. And when Paul comes back through Ephesus, not, he doesn't find converts. What he finds is followers of Jesus Christ, because that's what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. And so now Paul, in Acts chapter 19, goes back into the synagogue. The Bible tells us that he's there for three months. He's disputing. He's persuading they kicked him out of the synagogue. They got tired of him showing up and teaching. So he finds a guy named Tyrannus who has a school, and he spends a couple of years in that school 
And that school becomes the hub of the gospel in that area of the world. So much so that all of Asia hears the word of God, both the Jews and the Gentiles. And I'm, I'm giving you kind of a history of Ephesus through the book of Acts because it's really important. You need to understand what this church culturally was going through. And so in Acts chapter 20, when, when Paul leaves, he, he, he's continuing on his missionary journey. He calls for the elders of Ephesus to meet him. He doesn't go back to Ephesus. And as he meets those pastors now, those elders at Ephesus, he says, listen, I haven't shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. As a matter of fact, in verse 31, he says, listen, watch and remember that by the space of how many years? Three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so Paul's full ministry at Ephesus would have been three years. Now that's important because, because whatever they got in three years, Paul said was enough for them to continue the ministry that God had called them to do. I've given you all the counsel of God. I've warned you for three years straight. And then he says in verse 32, and it's on the screen. I think it's on the screen. He says, now, brethren, I commend you to who? To God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. This church in Ephesus had an apostle that got the gospel there, had an apostle as the pastor, had some other guys also that became the pastor of this church, Timothy later on, probably Apollos for a, a season was the pastor of this church at Ephesus, maybe even John, the apostle John. But I'm just telling you, they were the recipients of strong biblical teaching so much that after three years, Paul could commend that church to God and say, you know what? I've given you the gospel. I've given you the word of God. All you need is, is those things. And you ought to be able to keep doing what you, you're, you're called to do. Do you know what? That, that's a testimony. I'm just going to take a rabbit trail right off the beginning. That's the testimony of a, a, a strong church that can take what they've been given and continue no matter who the pastor is. Now, this is not my resignation this morning, <laughs> right? But let me just tell you, we've been given some things at this church. And what we've been given is the gospel, and what we've been given is the word of God. We've been given the ministry of discipleship. We know what to do. We just need to do it. And, and listen, if God forbid, man, takes my life, moves me, what, it doesn't matter who the pastor of this church is. We have been given everything that we need at this church. And the truth is, there are a lot of other churches that have been given what they need too. The issue is, are we going to be faithful with what we've been given? We need to be able to be commended to God. We have his word. God is able to continue to build us up and to give us an inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. So that's the city in which this church is planted and to which Jesus Christ is writing. Number two, we saw that Christ has a unique position in this church. The Bible says in the same verse, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And so each of these seven churches, we learn something unique about the church, but we also learn something unique about Christ. And what we learn about Christ at Ephesus is, number one, Christ talks to his church. These things saith he. And aren't you thankful the Lord speaks to his church? And listen, if you're part of his church, if you're saved, if you're born again, God wants to talk to you. God wants to talk to our corporate body. God wants to talk to you individually. I hope, you, I hope your heart is that you hear from the Lord today. And, and if your heart is to hear from him, I believe God will speak to us through his word. But number two, Christ also walks in the midst of his church because that verse says that Christ walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And we studied that last week. We talked about how the Lord has feet of brass, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 15, which, which shows us his judgment, his holiness. Brass takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus and the altar 
of brass, the brazen altar. Those brass feet are going to split the Mount of Olives at Christ's second coming. Those brass feet are going to crush the serpent's head, and those brass feet want to walk in the midst of his church. We looked at a really weird story last week, and I'm not going to recount that story. makes a great Christmas card, I hear. But in Deuteronomy 23, God is walking in the midst of the camp of Israel, and he wants to make sure the camp is holy because that's where he's setting his feet. It's just really important. And, and so we learn that, that the Lord wants to have his presence felt and known in his church. And so this morning, we're picking up with point number three. And point number three is, is going to take us the rest of our time this morning. But we're going to see the commendation that Jesus Christ gives to this church at Ephesus. We're going to see the things that Christ commends concerning this church. And I know you got a lot of blanks, but, but I think we can get there before lunch. This is important for me personally because I want to, anything that Jesus gives a com- commendation to, I want to pay attention to. What kind of church and what kind of activities does the Lord commend? Because God help us to be that kind of church. Does that make sense? And God help us to be that kind of Christian. That's what we need to desire. And so what are some things we learn about the church of Ephesus? Well, well, the first blank is this. Ephesus was a productive church. They were a productive church because Jesus says in verse 2, I know thy works. Well, that's very interesting. And let me just say some things this morning as as we kind of get the ball rolling. First and foremost, we need to understand that Jesus knows what's really going on. Jesus knows what's happening in his church. Jesus knows what's happening in our individual lives. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're not doing. The word of God tells us that Jesus said, I know thy works. He didn't say, I know what you believe, or I know what you think, or I know what you feel. He knows the church's works. And it means that he also knows the individual Christian's works. As we study Revelation 2 and 3, we're going to see that every church that Jesus Christ speaks to, he says to that church, I know thy works. I know, I, I know your works. I already know. And you can't hide it. You know, we have a problem as humans. We have the same problem that Adam and Eve had when, when, when we sin, when we fall short, when we backslide against God. We tend to hide from God. We cover ourselves with different things. Sometimes we cover ourselves with our own self-righteousness. Sometimes we cover ourselves with religion. We hide among the trees. And Jesus is walking in the midst of his church, just like he walks in the midst of the garden. And he already knows. Uh, Listen, do do you not think that Jesus knew that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? Give me a break. He's God. He already knew. He already knew what they did and what they weren't doing. He already knew that they had sinned. He knew they were hiding. And we need to learn this morning that Jesus already knows because he's God. He's all-knowing. And and so it's interesting that he commends this church because of their works. What kind of works were they doing? Well, we need to know that when God saved us, God didn't save us because of our works. He saved us because of his finished work on the cross of Calvary. The reason I'm forgiven of my sin is not because of what what I've done. As a matter of fact, I've messed that up so many times I can't count. If it were up to me and my good works, I could never save myself from my sin. And as soon as I tried, I would fail. But Christ's finished work on the cross is what saves us from our sin. Our works aren't to save us, but, but God expects his saved people to do some works. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10... God's word tells us that we are his workmanship, listen, created in Christ Jesus unto unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God expects his church to do some things, which by default means God expects his children, believers in Christ, to do some things. There, There are some works not to get you saved. But there are some works that are expected because you're saved. First, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God gives us His Word through inspiration. And that Word is profitable for these things, 
doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may, may be perfect or mature or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I know thy works, Christ says to the church. And so you have to ask yourself the question, I hope you ask yourself, what are the works that Christ is looking for? What are the good works, not to save us, but because of who we are in Christ, what are the good works that are a result of his workmanship in and through our life? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, I think it's the same works that the Apostle Paul did. Because it says in verse 58, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And again, in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 10, he says, Now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh, listen, he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. So whatever the work is that God is looking for, it's what, what Paul did, it's what Timothy did, the truth is it's what Christ himself did. It's what Christ did when he was on this earth. And the two things that I put in your notes just for time's sake is number one, the first part of that work is the work of evangelism. It's manifesting the gospel to the nations. We are called to do the work of an evangelist. That's what we're called to do. You say, well, I don't have that gift. Well, you have that calling. And there are people that certainly are spiritually gifted to preach the gospel and, and certainly more effective maybe than others, but, but we are all called at the very basic of our Christianity to do the work of evangelism. And let me just tell you, Brett Bartlett posted something uh, this week on Facebook, and I was like, I'm stealing that, I'm stealing that. There's some things you can't steal from Brett Bartlett, by the way, but if you were at the marriage conference, you know what I'm talking about. But, but there are some things that I can steal and he, he put a Facebook post up, and, and I thought it was really good. He, here's what he said. He said, sadly, we have discipled evangelism right out of the Great Commission. Now, listen, we are a church that is no stranger to discipleship. We talk about discipleship all the time. We talk about discipleship. You need to grow as a Christian to maturity. We need to bring other people to the maturity of a mature believer in Christ. But let me just also remind you that we can never disciple people without losing our goal and zeal and emphasis on evangelism. If the end goal of discipleship is not to make a fisher of men, we are not making disciples. As a matter of fact, if you think that you're a disciple of Christ and you aren't actively seeking and sharing the gospel with the lost, you most certainly are not a disciple of Christ. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, He saith unto them, listen, Follow me, that's a disciple, and I will make you fishers of men. And, and I would agree with my brother from another mother, Brett Bartlett. We have gotten so good at discipling that we have excluded evangelism completely from the Great Commission for churches like this. We will go through a discipleship curriculum. We'll go through a relationship. We'll spend a year and a half discipling somebody and never once lead a person to Christ through that relationship. Never once provoke our disciple to witness to the people on their job, the people in their community. Never once teach them how to share the gospel. I wonder if the Lord looked at our church, man, what he would say concerning our works. We, we do a really good job of teaching the Bible. We, we just, there's some work that we're, we're forgetting and missing, and it's the work of evangelism. And I'll say it again, listen, if you're not a fisher of men, you're not truly a disciple of Christ. I don't care if that offends you, if that hurts your feelings. Christ said it. We can't follow him without fishing for men. Number two, it is the work of discipleship because we take those that receive the gospel and we mature them through the word of God, through a biblical relationship 
that was modeled with Christ and his disciples, that was modeled with Paul and Timothy, we mature the saints in the word of God with the end goal of having a mature Christian who is a fisher of men. Not someone who can quote 600 Bible memory verses and and read their Bible. And listen, I'm all for you quoting 600 Bible verses and reading your Bible and having a personal relationship with Christ. But the Lord is also looking for us to be faithful in the work. And faithfulness is the work of evangelism. It's the work of evangelism. So Ephesus was a productive church because it got the job done. It did what they were called to do. Number two, it was a persevering church. So the Lord says, I know thy works. And then he says in the same verse, I know thy labor. So they were a persevering church. Now, when you look at that word labor in the context, sometimes we use the word labor as another word for work. And what Christ is not saying here is, I know your works and your work. That's not what he's saying. The word labor in this context literally means trouble or weariness or pain Trouble or toil, okay? And that's the word that's translated to labor in this passage of Scripture. And that word is used other times. Paul, for instance, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, when he talked about being a minister of God, he talked about the things that he suffered. This will really make you want to commit your life to the ministry right here. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 4, he says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Here's what approves you as a minister of God, by the way. In much patience, in affliction, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, and then what? In, in labors or trouble or toil. Uh, we use that word labor with, with our wives when, when they're about to have children, right? And, and it is work, but it's also trouble and toil. Do you understand? It, it's, it's laborious. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant. And he's not talking about just his work, but he's talking about the trouble that he experienced as, a, as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Ephesus, they were a persevering church because Christ himself says, You know what? You guys are, you guys are doing the work in the midst of toil and trouble. It's not easy and yet you're still doing it. Remember the culture. I mean, they got the temple of Diana. They got, they got all these people. They're ruining the economy with the gospel in Ephesus. Do you not think they faced opposition? I mean, listen, th- that whole city was in an uproar because of what God was doing there. And, and yet, in the midst of their toil and trouble, they persevered. They persevered. Number three, Ephesus was a patient church because the Lord says, listen, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. So they had patience in the work because you need patience when things are hard. Anybody getting, to make a, getting ready to make a New Year's resolution or working out? Raise your hand. The rest of you know that that resolution is probably not a good one. I'm thinking about it. I've got a couple of weeks to figure it out. You know, you, you know when it gets hard, we generally want to stop. Right? Whether that's exercise, whether that's reading the Bible, whether that's doing ministry, being a godly husband, like we learned this weekend at the marriage conference, man, being a godly wife. When it gets hard, we want to stop. We, we, we need patience. We, we need to endure difficult things for the long haul. Ephesus was a patient church. The Lord said, listen, I recognize your patience. Patience is necessary with difficult people and difficult circumstances. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 4, the Bible says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, and how much patience? Much. You're going to, if you're going to be a minister of God, guess, God, guess what God's going to develop in your life? Much patience. Because people are difficult, and I'm a people. And I'm difficult. And my wife would say amen right there. And so, and so we have to have patience in ministry. We have to have patience as we share the gospel. We have to have patience in a discipleship relationship. Why can't you just get this? <laughs> well, you got to have patience. And, and what I've learned about our city and our culture is things don't really happen fast around here. 
in Huntsville, Alabama. They don't. And, and spiritual maturity, even within our church, sometimes takes months and years to, to see the next step taken. We, you know what you need as a church when that's the case? You've got to have patience. You've got to have patience. And Ephesus had it, man. They, they, they were a patient church. The Lord commended them because of their patience. And, and listen, you're, you're looking at the most impatient guy in the room. I'm serious. Like, I want it done now, like yesterday. Let's just move forward. Why can't we get this done? I'm impatient. I, 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 I'll admit it. And yet God has reminded me and continues to remind me, hey, you just need to endure some things. You just keep working, and it'll just kind of work out for my glory. So this church was a patient church. Let me just also remind you that being patient doesn't mean passivity. In other words, Ephesus was patient, but they were still working. They were waiting on the Lord. They were, they were enduring toil and difficulty, and yet they were still laboring. And, uh, and that's a good reminder. When we don't see the results as quick as what we think we should see them, well, we need to just keep laboring and trusting the Lord. Number four, Ephesus was a perturbed church. I love that word. I had to find a P word that matched. Because, you know, if they don't all match, it ain't really a sermon. But Ephesus was a perturbed church. And what I mean by that is, listen, they kind of got hacked off at some stuff, if I can say that graciously. There were some things that actually rattled these guys' cages so much that they just couldn't stand it. Anybody in the room like that? That any of you get easily, I know, you're all, turn your halo down, it's fine. Me and Connor are like right there. Connor's like, I know, man, I get frustrated. Me too, man. It, it, listen, there's just some things I just can't stand. I go from zero to ten real fast on some things. Here's what this church get, got perturbed about. Look what it says. Jesus commends them because of their intolerance. You can't stand, you can't bear them, which are what? Evil. The Lord commends this church on their intolerance and, and the fact that they just got frustrated and they couldn't bear them which are evil. I mean, it troubled them, it annoyed them, it irritated them to the point of not being able to bear it. And the Lord said, right on. Now here's the problem. The truth is most churches in the 21st century don't get too worked up about evil. As a matter of fact, we don't get perturbed at it. We welcome it. We do bear it. We're like Isaiah 5 and verse 20, where the Bible says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And God's word says that evil and good are as far apart as light and dark. And God's word says that evil and good are as far apart as bitter and sweet. And this church is commended by Christ himself saying, hey, listen, you can't stand it. You don't bear it. It upsets you. It drives you nuts. You don't tolerate it. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, he says, let love be without dissimulation. But then he says, abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. And I just wonder sometimes, man, as Christ looks at the churches in the 21st century and as Christ looks at our church, would he find us as a church that really has a, a clear stance on good and evil? I mean, I mean, do we draw the line on some things or do we just tolerate some things? Do we bear some things? God tells us in Romans 16 and verse 19, again, Paul writing to the Romans, he says kind of in the last part of that passage, he says, I would, you, I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. In other words, this isn't that hard. It's really simple. If it's evil, abhor it. If it's evil, don't, don't bear it. If it's evil, turn from it. As a matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22 tells us to abstain from all appearance of evil. If it looks evil, well, it's probably not for the child of God. 
And let me just tell you that if you're smack dab in the middle of evil, be rest assured that God didn't lead you there. God didn't lead you there. Actually, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3, the Bible tells us the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. When we walk with the Lord, he's not going to let us walk in evil and evil things. And this was a commendation that this church received from Christ himself. And maybe that's not landing in your lap, but I think it should. Because there's a clear standard between right and wrong, good and evil. And this church had commendation that, hey, you got it right, church, from Christ himself. Number, number five is this. Ephesus was a proving church. So not only were they perturbed and things really you know, upset them and, and, and they were unable to bear some things, but they also were a proving church because, again, the verse goes on and it says, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. And has found them what? And, and man, can, can you just see that Christ is commending this church for, for kind of being intolerant? I know that's not popular in our culture. I know that's not popular in our churches today. But here's a church that, number one, said, here's what evil is, and we're not going to bear it. And, and the other thing is, here are some people that say they are apostles, and the truth is they're not apostles. They're actually what? liars. So let's talk about this for a second. Because as you read through the book of Acts, you start out with 11 apostles. There were 12 apostles. Judas fell by the transgression. In Acts chapter 1, the 12th apostle was appointed, and his name was Matthias. And from that point forward through the book of Acts, there are 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. There, only had, to, there, there, there had to be 12, and there could only be 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Matthew 19 and verse 28 tells you why. Jesus said to his apostles, "Ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the glory of uh, in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon how many thrones? Twelve thrones, judging twelve tribes of who, of Israel. And so the twelve apostles are going to sit on twelve thrones. They're going to judge the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. And so there are only twelve apostles of Jesus Christ." When James is martyred in Acts chapter 12 by Herod, he's not replaced. There is no apostolic secession. There's no continuation of the office of the apostle. There is the apostle Paul, who is a special apostle set apart for a special ministry to the Gentiles. He tells us so in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He calls himself an apostle. But he makes sure that you know He's not part of the 12. As a matter of fact, Paul never included himself in the 12 apostles. He's not the 13th apostle because there's not 13 thrones available. There's only 12 thrones available. So the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 7 and 8, he's talking about the resurrection, that Christ was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And then he excludes himself from that group. Last of all, he was seen of who? Me also, as one that was born out of due time. So, so you need to know that there are only 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, but through the book of Acts and through early church history, there were people that claimed to be apostles, and they were not. And, and by, by the way, if you fast forward that 2,000 years, there are people today that claim to be apostles, and they most certainly are not the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 13, for such are false apostles. And God says of these false apostles, they are deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. That there are people in Paul's day, there's people in John's day that were false apostles. And instead of Christ gifting them the gift of apostleship, they transformed themselves into the apostles of Christ. And, and I'm not going to apologize for this statement. They boast of having the apostolic gifts. They boast of new revelation from God, even though you have a complete Bible. They even boast to the point of writing epistles on behalf of God. You see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2, where, where, where Paul says to the Thessalonians, Hey, listen, don't be shaken in your mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word. Listen, nor by letter, 
as from us. In other words, God was using Paul, God was using other apostles to write the revelation of Scripture. But there were false apostles in Paul's day that were writing letters that were absolutely opposite of what God's Word said, absolutely opposite of what the Apostle Paul taught, absolutely opposite of what John taught. They were false apostles with false letters because they corrupted God's Word. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 17, the Bible says, We are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. So Jesus commends this church at Ephesus because they tried these false apostles and they found them as liars. You say, well, that doesn't sound very Christian and spiritual. It does sound very biblical and scriptural. And there are people today, man, that stand in pulpits all over this city and all over this world that claim to be something they are not. And God says of those people, you're a liar. You're boasting of something that you do not have. You say you're an apostle of Jesus Christ. You most certainly are not. You don't have the gift of apostleship. You don't have the revelation of the apostleship. You don't have the epistles of an apostle. And the truth is you're nothing but a liar. You say, man, that sounds hard. Well, God tells us in Proverbs 30 and verse 6 that we are not to add unto his words lest God reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And so God commends this church for testing and trying those that say they are some things and, and, and ultimately are not. God tells us in John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 that, that, beloved, we are not to believe every spirit, but we're to what? We're to try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So, so can I just encourage you today, as you sit and fill your notes out, or maybe you're just sitting here thinking, man, this guy's full of it, and that's fine if that's what you think. Why don't you do your homework and, and go home and see if what I'm telling you is really in the Bible? Why don't you try the spirits and see whether or not they are of God or not? And the, the standard for which to you measure the, the, the truth is the Word of God itself. When you measure what's being said against the Word of God, is it what God said, rightly divided, in context, line upon line, precept upon precept, comparing Scripture with Scripture? You say, well, we're not called to judge other people. Oh, really? So Matthew 7, 1 is like your favorite verse? I mean, have you read the rest of the Bible? 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 15, the Bible says, but he that's spiritual judgeth all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. When, when there was carnal, wicked sin going on in the Corinthian church where man was having intimate relations with his father's wife and it's just gross and sickening and evil, as Paul writes the Corinthian letter in 1 Corinthians 5 and verses 3 to 5, he says, I'm absent in body, but I'm present in spirit, and I've judged already. Well, we're not supposed to judge as Christians. You better read your Bible. You need to try that statement against the Word of, of God. God's called you to judge righteous judgment. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 to 3, the Bible asks the question, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to to this life. Ephesus was a pretty intolerant church. They kind of pointed some, some homies out and said, hey, that dude right there, that dude's a liar. He says he's an apostle, and he ain't. And he doesn't have the apostolic gifts, and he doesn't have new revelation from God, and what he's writing is not scripture. And he's speaking in tongues on top of it, and by the way, that ain't biblical either. Well, you can't say that. Well, I can say it. They're just a bunch of liars. Because as we go back to the authority of the Word of God, we can see very clearly what is true. We try and test those things according to the measure of Scripture. Well, let me just show you a little bit more how intolerant this church is. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 6, God also says concerning this church that this thou hast, 
Thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now listen, you can't be in a better place than liking what Jesus likes and hating what Jesus hates. And by the way, he hates some things. You say, well, I don't believe he hates some things. Well, you obviously can't read. <laughs> it says it right there, that he hates, he hates some deeds of the Nicolaitans. So not only did the church of Ephesus judge some people, but they also hated some things. What are the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Well, Nicolaitan really is broken down into two words. Nico means to conquer. Laos means laity or the people. And, and, and really what was happening in the early church was that there began to be a, a group of people that through their deeds, they attempted to put themselves above the common man. Similar to what the scribes and the Pharisees did in Christ's ministry. And I want you to understand that Christ is a champion for the common man. And as it relates to the body of Christ, we're all on the same playing, playing field, man. We're on the same level. We have different gifts according to the grace of God, but our value is the exact same. It's the exact same. I am no more valuable or less value, valuable in the body of Christ than you, and you are no more less valuable uh, than I am. We are all the same, and Christ is a champion to the common man. But what he hates is this thing of Nicolaitan, where, where there's a hierarchy of conquering the lay people. Mark 12 and verse 37, the Bible says concerning the common man that the common people heard him gladly. Christ is a, a champion for the common man. And what he hates is this hierarchy, a priest class that somehow can know God better than you can know God. God hates that. God hates those deeds. He hates that structure. He hates that system. We're going to see it again in one of the next churches. So man, this, this church at Ephesus, they were a proving church. And there was kind of some stuff that they said, you know what? That's wrong. And I hate that. And the Lord said, good for you. He commended it. Number six, Ephesus was a powerful church. Verse 3 says, the Lord says to this church, you have born and has patience. We talked about patience earlier. That word born literally means to carry a burden, to bear a burden. And so this church was known for bearing some things, for, 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 for bearing a burden to carry. And, and as we study that word through the scriptures, many times it goes all the way back to the cross. Like in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, for instance, the Bible talks about how Christ bore our griefs. Surely he hath borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, spent of God, and afflicted. Aren't you thankful that Christ bore your sin? Man, he carried the weight that you couldn't carry. He carried the judgment that you didn't want to pay. He paid the price that you absolutely could not pay in your flesh and blood, except for all of eternity suffering because of your sin. John 19 and verse 17 tells us that Christ bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. And so Ephesus was commended because they bore, they bore some things. They, they, they were born in the sense that they bore their burdens. And then lastly, they were a predisposed church, a predisposed church. And, and as, as, as Christ closes down the commendation he says, hey, you did all this for my name's sake. You've labored and you've not fainted. They were predisposed. They were willing. They were inclined to do some things, but, but they were willing to do some things for the right reason. And so get this in your notes. The name of Christ was their motivation. You're doing it for my name's sake. Not for your name's sake, not for your glory, but you're doing it for my name's sake. You're laboring, you're not feigning, but you're doing it for my name's sake. And man, that ought to be our predisposition for anything. We're to sing for the Lord's name's sake. We're to serve for the Lord's sake. We're to teach children for the Lord's sake. We're to make disciples 
for the Lord's name's sake. That ought to be our motivation. That, that's what motivated Ephesus. It, man, listen, it wasn't the judgment seat of Christ and the rewards. It wasn't just the duty and the obligation as a Christian. It's for Christ's name's sake. So Christ, you get all the glory. You get all the honor. You get all the praise because you're worthy. You know, as you study that, that thing of my namesake through the scripture, there, there are many times that God tells us in his word that if you do what you do for Christ's namesake, you're going to suffer. Luke 21, verse 17. You shall be hated of all men for my namesake. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> That'll make you want to run out and tell everybody about Jesus, right? <laughs> You're going to suffer when you, when you share the name of Christ. John 15, and verses 20 and 21. Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If, he, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you, listen, for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. When Paul was converted on the Damascus road, Christ revealed to Paul some things that he was going to have to suffer, listen, for his name's sake. That's got to be our motivation. Why do you do what you do? Is it for your namesake? So that somebody would say, hey man, so-and-so did a great job today. Now listen, we should commend each other. But hopefully your motivation is not for the praise of men. Hopefully your motivation is for the Lord's namesake. Number two, the name of Christ not only was their motivation, but lastly, the name of Christ was their strength. Because the Bible says that when they did what they did for the name of Christ's sake, they didn't faint. They didn't faint. And, and I find comfort in that, and I find strength in that, because there's times where I want to quit. As a matter of fact, any pastor that doesn't want to quit on Monday morning, well, I just wonder what he's doing. I don't know, man. He's probably way more spiritual than I am. But every Monday morning, Sunday afternoon slash Monday morning, it's like, man, I'm, I'm going to type this resignation up and take it, take it somewhere else, take it to the house. But, but then you realize man, Christ is my strength. And, and ministry is hard, and, and we suffer things, and, and we labor, but yet we don't have to faint. Galatians 6 and verse 9 says, let us not be weary in well-doing. And we all get tired. <laughs> we weary. And, and in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. 2 Corinthians 4, 1, therefore seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not. I got this long text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul, again, talks about, you know, his sufferings and his, his walk with the Lord and bearing in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ, death working in him, but life being a result of his ministry. He talks about the resurrection. He talks about the grace that God gives through his ministry. But in the very last part of that verse, I don't have it on the screen. I don't think I have it on the screen. In verse 16, Paul says, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And you know, listen, when you do it for the name of the Lord's sake, well, that gives you strength. You see, if you do ministry for me, you're going to get tired of it and quit. You do it for Cody, you're going to get tired of it and quit. You know what I'm saying? You get discipled because I ask you to get discipled, you're going to quit. But when you start doing what you do because of the Lord's name, well, it gives you motivation, and it gives you strength. And you won't faint, because at the end of the day, you'll say, man, if I, if I step out on this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to reflect on the Lord. Man, the Lord's worth it. I'm going to show back up. I'm going to give it one more shot. I'm going to study this lesson. I'm going to teach this lesson. I'm going to serve in this capacity. I'm going to do whatever it is that's right in front of me for the Lord, and I'm going to let him use me. So listen, as we talk about Ephesus, we're closing now. I know your blanks are filled in. Let me, let me ask you some questions. Number one, what kind of church is CFBC? Like, like would God look at our church and say, okay, God, as, as Christ looks at our church, would he say that we're a productive church? In other words, are we about the work of evangelism and discipleship? Are we a persevering church? Do we endure toil and trouble and continue to labor in spite of it? Are we a patient church? that knows that we, we need to keep laboring until the Lord comes. Are we a perturbed church? Now listen, I know you are, but for the right reason. You know what I'm saying? Like, like 
are we trying the spirits according to the Word of God? Do we have the spiritual awareness and discernment from God's Word to say, you know what, I don't believe everything I hear. It may sound Christian and spiritual, but it may not be biblical and scriptural. Are we a proving church? Are we a powerful church? Do we bear the cross of Christ? And are we a predisposed church? Listen, before you answer that question, here's the second question you need to ask yourself. What kind of Christian am I? Because whatever kind of Christian I am is the type of church we'll be. So if I'm not a productive Christian and I'm not engaged in evangelism and discipleship, how can I expect my church to be a productive church? If I'm not a persevering Christian, enduring toil and tribulation, how can I expect my church to be a persevering church? If I'm not a patient Christian who continues in the work and waiting on the coming of the Lord in spite of difficulty, how can I expect my church to be a patient church? If I'm not a perturbed church, listen, and, and I don't have things that bother me, like I don't hate evil, how can I expect my church to hate evil? If I don't try the spirits and prove what's right and wrong according to the standard of God's word, how can my church have that standard? If I'm not willing to bear my cross, how can my church bear its cross? And if I'm not willing to do what I do for the name of the Lord, how can my church do that? Because I'm telling you, listen, this church is made up of people. And we can't go through that list of commendation and say, well, yeah, I think our church is all those things. But at the end of the day, us not be any of those things. Our church is, is us. And it takes a body. And so I hope that's a challenge to you. Listen, we, we can be that type of church. And the reason I know we can be that type of church is because there were other churches like this throughout history. And that's what God's desire is. And God gets glory from that kind of church. God commends those type of things in the church, which means God commends those type of things in individual Christian lives. We can be that kind of person. We can be that kind of Christian that the Lord looks favorably upon and says, well done. I know your works. That's awesome. Let's pray.